Job chapter 22 is where we turn this morning. Job 22, continuing the speeches that Job and his friends have had for some time. The question came, it even comes into our text this morning, as Job uses the word today. And the question is, well, how long have these speeches been going on? Has it been days, weeks, months? I mean, these are just a lot of heavy talking. And truly, if you counted up how many words in these, these even the three series or cycles of speeches and, and divided it by the average number of people, average number of words that people speak per minute, you'd come up with, it would maybe take three hours, hour and a half even, that people are fast speaking, three hours maybe, to do all these speeches. And you think, oh my word, what kind of a, what kind of a comfort is that that Job received from his friends? Well, the, the point is, we don't know how quickly these events transpired. It's likely Job had been ill, uh, stricken in his body for some time. How quickly that, that physical suffering followed the loss of his livestock, loss of his servants, loss of his children, his ten children. I don't know. don't know. It's not clear in the text. I do know that in that, that second um, test or, or trial that Satan brought upon Job, it happened immediately, right as soon as Satan received the, the go-ahead from the Lord God, Yahweh, that he went out to smite him, struck him from the sole of his foot to the top of his head and with boils and just horrible, horrible, horrible situation and, and suffering. So, but how long has it taken from the first, you know, John, or excuse me, Job chapter 1 till Job 22? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's been a heavy burden upon Job. He mentions it. He's mentioned it already. He'll mention it again. Just the great distress that he has, emotional, spiritual, physical, all the things coming together. By the way, we shouldn't seek to, to distinguish overmuch. Sometimes it's helpful, but overmuch we should not try to distinguish between things that are a physical malady versus a emotional, relational, spiritual malady. We're one person. And so if you stub your toe, can you give thanks? Can you spiritually you know, come before the Lord? Uh, if you're sick, does that mean that you have license to be greedy and, and covetous and rude and angry and bitter? No. Despite what physical maladies we have, despite what emotional, even loneliness aspects, which again is all encapsulated in Job's life, all the things that he's going through, loneliness, extreme loneliness and estrangement. We'll talk about that in chapter 29 or 30. I forget where he talks about that again. He is just all the trials that we can experience, maybe in a in a week to week or month to month, or maybe over a course of a decade, different patterns or different seasons of trials. It's all heaped upon him at once. I mean, he is just overrun with difficulty in his life, and he's doesn't understand why is this happening. I I thought that I was a good person, right? which he is, right? Job 1 and verse 1. There's this guy who lived in land of Uz, and his name was Job, and he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But all these trials happened upon him. Why? 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 Where is God? And, of course, the friends, their solution is, well, it's a simple solution, really, Job. You know that suffering follows sin. We all know that. And so if you're suffering, well, Job, you're a sinner. Just confess your sin and draw back to God and you'll receive the blessing, right? Because blessing follows piety. You come before the Lord, you trust in him, you repent, you turn away from your sin, and God will restore all the stuff that, that you lost. Because it's your fault, Job. You did it. Wait a minute. What kind of comfort is that? And even Eliphaz is going to have a beautiful, beautiful, tremendous depiction of uh, righteous repentance, 
and the blessings, not just of the stuff that attached to it, which they, you know, gold and silver and the livestock and the children, God will bless you with that. No, Eliphaz even says, no, God will answer with himself. And, and you forget about all the gold, the, the precious stuff you had. You'll draw near and find him as your treasure, which is a beautiful thought, except it's entirely unfounded because, wait a minute, Job was righteous. He was blameless. There's, that's not the solution that Job needs. Eliphaz, you're not listening to what Job is telling you. You're making things up out of whole cloth, which, by the way, do you know that idiom? making things out of, up out of whole cloth. It means a totally new fabrication. You don't take bits and rags of this and put it together. No, you make something entirely new, and that's what they do. That's what Eliphaz does here in chapter 22. He accuses Job of so many nasty things that, I mean, almost take your breath away. How could Job, this righteous, blameless guy, be guilty of all these things? And it's almost to, to each point that Eliphaz, is bring, Eliphaz brings up against Job. Job, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And by the way, not just I didn't do that, I did the extreme opposite. It has to do with oppression, misuse of, of wealth, and uh, victimization of the poor. Job says, I was a generous fella. How can you even, again, you're making this up out of whole cloth. You're making this up and trying to, trying to fit me into your model. I don't fit in your model. I'm the exception. Suffering has followed not my sin and not my piety. Why do I have this suffering? Where is God in my, in my midst? Well, never to be daunted, Eliphaz, on his third try here, tries to help Job understand that he is, in fact, a great sinner. He is a notorious sinner. He's just an embarrassing uh, embarrassment to himself, and that's the reason why he has such uh, difficulty in his, in his life. Uh, Job chapter 22 Let me read these first uh, few verses here, and then we'll look at them a little more carefully. Verse 2 says, Can a mighty man be of some, or be of use to God, or an insightful man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous, or profit if you make your ways perfect? Is it because of your reverent fear that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your evil great, and your iniquities without end? We'll stop right there. And he goes on to list some things. But he says, look, God doesn't care about your thing. What, how does God benefit if you're righteous or unrighteous? God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wants, which is true to a point. God is not touched or afflicted by our sin. We're going to suffer for our own sin. But to say that God doesn't care about us, that's not right. God is in, you know, is there any pleasure? Verse 3, is there any pleasure, any delight, any satisfaction that God receives if we're righteous? No. If you sin, it's going to affect your own self and probably other people nearby you. God doesn't take pleasure in a righteous person, which is, goes rightly against what Job has been earnestly pleading for. He wants God to care about him. God, see my need. Come and rescue me. And he wanted even the opportunity to present his case before God and say, God, I've been given a bum, bum rap, or I've been framed, or I don't know what's going on here. I don't understand what is going on. And Eliphaz says, forget about it. God doesn't care about you, which is just so rude, so wrong. God does care about his people. He is angry, of course, with sinners, but Job is not a sinful person. Do you remember how God said it multiple times in in Job chapters 1 and 2, and I'll say it again, I think six times, six times in chapter 42, my servant Job. Servant, my servant. When God calls somebody my servant, it's not like, oh, he's my slave, I don't care about him. There's an endearing relationship. This is my beloved servant. Who else does he call a servant? Moses but even more so, 
Jesus. My servant, Jesus, my servant shall prosper. Isaiah 52 and 53 and, and beyond in that text of Isaiah. Jesus, the son of God, the servant of God, servant of Yahweh. And so Job is very dear to, to uh, Yahweh. There is that idea that, that, okay, so sinners can't benefit God in any way. Well, God does delight in the prayers of his saints. God does take pleasure in the worship, the praise of his people. And so Eliphaz is just wrong. He's wrong on so many respects. And he's trying to honor God, right? But he, he's just wrongheaded, which, you know, fast forward to the chapter 42. Eliphaz and the other guys, you have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. You should listen to him. He goes on, though, not to be daunted again. Verse 6, he lists, 6 through 9, he lists so many different sins that, that Job has apparently committed. He says, your sin is great, and you've sinned in so many different ways, for you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause. Verse 6, the clothing of the naked. To the weary, you've given no water to drink, and from the hungry, you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the highly respected man inhabits it. You have sent widows away empty, and the might of orphans has been crushed. He basically says, Job, you're a greedy fellow, and you are so stingy with everything, you do not use your wealth to benefit others. In fact, not just benefiting others or refusing to benefit others, you take from them. You steal. You're a thief. Job, how dare you? You take pledges of your brothers without cause. That word without cause reminds us of back in, in twice in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Does Job fear God without cause? Well, no. Satan is accusing Job of, of honoring or worshiping God because of all the stuff that he's received from God for being pious. And then God comes back to Satan in chapter 2, says, why did you, or so you incited me to, you know, raise my hand against Job without cause. And so now Eliphaz says, not that he knew what was going on in the heavenly court, by the way, he didn't know that conversation but Eliphaz says, there was no need for you to do what you did. You took pledges of your brothers and stripped the clothing of the naked. You think, aren't they already naked? Can you take clothing from the naked? Well, the idea is that whatever clothing they had, Job took. Usually it has to do with the outer garment. Um, in fact, this, is, this took place about 2000 BC. So before the Mosaic Covenant, before the, all the laws that came in under Moses and do this and don't do that and all this, and had, there's a specific laws about taking pledges, which is a, a token of indebtedness, that you owe me some money, so I'm going to take this so you make sure you pay me back, and I'll give it back to you when, when you pay me the, the money. Well, Job took the pledge, and there was no reason. That person wasn't indebted to you. You took it without cause, and you even took the, the outer clothing, outer, outer garments of the naked person. So they had, uh, you know, that was the only thing they had to cover themselves, only thing to wrap around them at night. You're just so mean, Job. You are oppressive. Uh, the next verse says, To the weary you've given no water drink. From the hungry you've withheld bread. You had it within your means to give to people, and you didn't do it. You're so mean-spirited. You are the one who's withholding nourishment. Job will deny that as well. And verse 8 is kind of, what do you mean by this, Eliphaz? The earth belongs to the mighty man, and the highly respected man inhabits it. It could be that Job, Eliphaz is accusing Job of being, you know, he's the man with the means. He's the one that can walk around with everybody kind of bowing down to him. Oh, there's Master Job, and we need to, to uh, you know, make you know, obeisance to him and honor him so he, he will give us out of his largesse, right, all of his stuff that he has. And so he walks around like Mr. Big Shot, right? And it's an accusation. Job, you're so proud and arrogant and condescending, but you do nothing to help other people. Verse uh, 9 goes on and says, You have sent widows away empty, 
widows and the might of orphans has been crushed. You're just so mean even to those who have no resources. You just take and take and take. You have, they come to you for aid, these widows, these widows who had no male uh, relatives nearby to help them, father, husband, or, or brothers, or, or uh, uh, children, uh, sons that would help in that regard. And he says, no. Eliphaz, Job, Eliphaz says to Job, you are just so wicked. You hate even those who are most destitute among us. And even the might or the, the arm of the, of the orphans, you have crushed them down. You've given no strength to them. And so this, verses 10 and 11, this is why you have such uh, suffering. This is why snares surround you. Remember how Bildad described uh, how many, was it four different ways or six different ways about snares and traps and, and uh, all these different expressions of, of being held by, by nasty things. And he says, therefore, snares surround you and sudden dread terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. That's why. It's because of your sin, Job, that all these things are happening to you. Well, he goes on and, and says, well, God knows about it. You're hiding it. You've tried to hide it. I know because I, I, I've seen you sin, but God knows your sin. In verses 12 through 20, he says, he accuses Job of saying, and Job has said something about this, but he, he said, where is God? Does God see what's going on on earth? Because if God sees, then why isn't he acting? Why? And this is our present distress or present question if there's a God, and people question that even, if he knows, which is another question, if he's able, which is another question, well, there is a God, he sees, and he is able, and he will judge. And so Eliphaz says, Job, you think that God doesn't know what you're hiding in your life. Well, he does, let me tell you. Just because he is hidden doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on this earth. So verse 12 says, is not God in the height of heaven? Look also at distant stars, how high they are. You say, hey, what does God know? Can he judge through the dense gloom? Clouds are a hiding place for him so that he cannot see and he walks in the vault of heaven. Which is a beautiful picture of who God is, right? God is high and exalted. He is in the height of heaven. You could you translate it there. Or God is the height of heaven. He is the absolute pinnacle outside of heaven. Even Solomon said, First Kings Six, eight, six or eight, I forget which chapter it is. He says, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this, this house that I built for you, for your name to dwell. Solomon knew the grandeur, the greatness of, of God. Eliphaz is celebrating that. He says, okay, you, you, Job, think that because God is so high that he can't see your little life. Well, he can. He can. He knows. He goes on. There's a lot of beautiful imagery, a lot of cosmology, not cosmetology, not talking about makeup and stuff. We're talking about cosmology, talking about stars and planets. A lot of that through this this remainder part of Job. It's touched on a little bit earlier, but but even now he says, look at the distant stars. They're way up high in the sky, and God is farther out than that. And so you say, Job, God doesn't know what's going on. How does God know? Can he judge through the dense gloom? Can he see through the, you know, can, he, can his gaze penetrate, penetrate through the clouds and the the fog and various things. He walks in the vault of heaven, and we're here on earth. How does he even pay attention to us? Well, God does. And he warns, Eliphaz warns Job in chapter 15 and following, do not be swept away with the wicked. God will come and judge. God will come and bring an appropriate sentence upon those who are wicked. So he says, don't, don't associate with any wicked persons. Verse 15, will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by river. Again, in these friends' 
understanding and not just understanding, explanation without fail, without exception, bad things happen to bad people. Suffering follows sin. And he says even it happens right now, almost immediately. If somebody sins, they're going to be wiped away. And that's the idea here. They were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river. It could be, again, I mentioned this is about 2000 BC. It's some 600 years or so after the flood. It could be in their remembering of the events of of past generations who hated God and were not walking according to his ways, that they were, as it says here, snatched away before their time and their foundations were washed away by a river. We know that it wasn't just a river that washed away a lot of the homes. It was a whole global flood that destroyed everything that has breath and uh, except those in the ark. They said here in verse uh, 17 here, depart from us and what can the Almighty do to them? You know, God is so distant, he, he will not bring any judgment upon us and so they just are given fully to do evil. In fact, that's Genesis 6 and verse whichever. It says because the, well, it's Ecclesiastes. Let me look at what Genesis 6 says because up with, with um, Ecclesiastes, which has a delayed judgment upon people. God saw that the sins of the, excuse me, the evil of man, this is Genesis 6 and verse 5, Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Oh, nasty. Evil of man was great and every intent of the thought of the heart was only evil all the time. Everything about them was just so evil and they needed to be destroyed. And so, God is the one who brought that destruction. Job, don't be like them. Don't be like those who are kept or captured or, or carried away in their wickedness. God is the one, it says, he filled their houses with good things. God is the one who blesses people, even the wicked people. But, Eliphaz says, I don't associate with those evil people. And for me, even to be an associate with you, Job, it's really a dangerous situation for me because all your counsel, all your, your windy words, they are almost upsetting me. And I've got to remain, you know, walk the ancient paths and, and uh, be true to God according to my understanding of him. And so he says, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. God is the one who gives these good things, but the wicked, no, I'm not going to associate with them, which reminds us, should remind us of Psalm 1, that the um, man of God does not walk in the pathway of sinners or stand on the the entrance or the doorway of the, I forget how it goes, Psalm 1, first three verses. You can look at that. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night, which we're going to see Job claim about himself in just a moment. need to move on here. And uh, this next section is verse 21. Job says, or Eliphaz says to Job, hey, just repent. Just repent and God will restore you. And again, this expression of repentance is, is a beautiful expression of repentance. But again, it's, it's misplaced, misapplied to Job because there was nothing, no, no sin that he had committed that brought upon him all the suffering that he has endured all this while. There's no reason, humanly speaking, for Job's suffering to have happened to him. So his appeal, verse 21 and 22, says, look, yield now, or just stop, stop. Um, Psalm 48, verse 10, I think it is. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Stop it. Just put your arms down, not your arms, but your weapons. Stop fighting us, God. Yield now, submit to him, and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and set his words in your heart, which is strange because you remember when Eliphaz first spoke 
to Job. Remember that kind of woo-woo experience he shared? You know, it was at nighttime, and this spirit kind of went by me, and it was all kind of strange, and the hair of my head just kind of... St- and he recited the message that, that Eliphaz, Eliphaz recited the message he received from a spirit. It doesn't even name it, a formless something or other. And yet he says, listen to what God says. Well, if you don't mind, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar think that they are speaking on behalf of God. They think that they are revealing to Job all the wonderful wisdom and counsel that God himself has given to them, and they're sharing it, except they're not. His, his plea, his encouragement here is true, is, is noble, is very good. Eliphaz says, receive instruction from his mouth and set his words in your hearts. Listen to God. Draw near to him. Receive his word, which Job says, I do. We're going to see it here shortly. And he says, look, if, 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 verses 23 and 24, if you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and put your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir from among the stones of the brooks, if, 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 this is repentance. What does it look like? Return to God. Return to Yahweh. Return to the Almighty. Remember that Job is the only one who uses Yahweh, the divine name of God, in all this text of, of Job, other than the, in the prologue and the epilogue where Yahweh's name is, appears by the narrator or the, the author, Job is the one who, only one who mentions or uses the name of Yahweh. Usually it's God as a title or the Almighty as, a, again, an honorific title. God is the strong one. And you will be restored, he says. And he gives a very practical example. Job, you have so much wealth. You use it for yourself. But if you put your gold in the dust, and this is the idea of gold was, was mined out of ore, just put that gold back where it belongs in the ground just walk away from it even the fine gold the gold of Ophir which is celebrated as very very pure very just valuable put it among the stones of the brooks just cast it away from you don't don't value it which is a, a good counsel right don't be captured by idolatry don't be captured by the the love of money first timothy 6 speaks about that many have pierced themselves with many griefs as a result of this so put it away from you Eliphaz's counsel is good, but it's totally inappropriate to Job's situation. He says, look, if you do these things, then, oh, and and Eliphaz just paints this beautiful picture of uh, a life reconciled to God in verses 25 uh, through the rest chapter. He says, then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you, for then you'll delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. In other words, he says, God will allow you to stand in his presence and you will bask in his glory. Kind of like when Moses was on the Mount Sinai and, and his whole face, his visage was transfigured before him. Kind of pointing forward to what Jesus in, um, experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. But God will be your gold and choice silver to you. Put away that earthly gold and silver, all the treasures you think you have, because you're not using them well anyway, Job. You're just a, such a stingy thief and nasty ne'er-do-well. So put your hope and your treasure in God. Then you will delight in him and you will lift up your face. You'll just have a joyful expression in him. So God will allow you to stand in his presence, verses 25 and 26. God's going to answer your prayers, verse 27. You will entreat him, you'll pray to him, and he'll hear you, (coughs) and you'll pay your vows. You will pray, he's going to answer it, and then you give thanks. Paying your vows has to do with with, uh, expressing thanksgiving, returning praise to God who gave. So God will answer your prayers. Verse 28 says, God's going to prosper you. Oh, he's going to do such good things. You'll also decree a thing, and it will be established for you, and light will shine in your ways. This is essentially whatever you believe you can achieve. Have you heard that before? Or name it and claim it. You, You name something. If you declare, decree a thing, right? If you decree a thing, it's going to be done. Just 
say it out loud, right? And you list all your things. And so Eliphaz is really a prosperity preacher going on. And that's that's not unusual for, you know, this, this statement is not out of line with what the friends have said. Job, you've lost so much, but just turn back to God. He'll give it back to you. All the stuff that you've lost, he'll give you the sheep and the, all the stuff if you just turn back to him. There, as, as close as Eliphaz says, you will delight in the Almighty. He'll be your gold and choice silver to you. When that, that's a noble sentiment. But then he falls right back into the prosperity thinking, materialism. And, and God's going to restore. He's going to bless you. Right? Blessing follows piety. Uh, the last thing he says, verse 29 and 30, which is a true, even perhaps in a, in, a, in a sense, a prophetic statement, verses 29 and 30. When some are cast down, you will speak with confidence and the humble person he will save. He'll provide escape for the one who's not innocent and he will escape through the cleanness of your hands. This, there's a lot of things going on there, even some, some idioms or some phrases and the, the text is kind of difficult to, to translate. That general idea is, that when people are going through a hard time, Job, you'll be there to help them. And with the cleanness of your hands, you'll be able to entreat on behalf of other people. Which, if you read the rest, the rest of the book, or the last chapter anyway, of Job, you realize God, Yahweh, says, my servant Job will pray for you. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. He will pray for you that your sins can be removed so that you, even though you're not innocent, you're guilty of, of blaspheming me or, or saying untrue things about me. Job is going to be the mediator uh, between uh, you and me, a priest even, in a, in a sense, before him. So Eliphaz is speaking truth, but again, it's so unfounded, so, so wrongheaded, this idea of repentance for a man who doesn't need to repent of those things. It's not to say, and Job never has claimed that he is sinless, perfect, you know, never has done, but he recognizes sin is in my life. And it's not just something that we do, it's something that we are innately, or, or something that happens not just in our words, but in our hearts. Remember how he interceded on behalf of his children, Job chapter 1 verse 5, when his sons and daughters had their feasts on the regular, on these regular days, he would offer sacrifices for them, thinking perhaps they have cursed God in their hearts. Perhaps something that they, you know, meditations of their heart was offensive to God. So even in that minute sense, which is, it's not minute in the, in the, in the true sense, right? It, whatever the heart, whatever's in the heart, it comes out in the mouth and the attitudes and the countenance. It says, I'm going to go right to the source and I'm going to sacrifice. And even the perhaps, I don't know if they did or not, but I'm going to offer sacrifices on their behalf. If Job was so intent to offer sacrifices for his children, do you think he didn't offer sacrifices for himself, for his wife, for those about him? He was a great trust, trusting fella in God's covering of sin through sacrifice. And so, again, he, he doesn't claim to be sinless. He just says, I've dealt with that sin. I don't know any unconfessed sin in my life. I, I, I deal with these things as soon as I encounter them so I can be pure and blameless before God. I want to have that relationship with him. I don't want anything to stand in my way stand in the way of my relationship with God. But now God is far distant from me. I don't know where he is. And this is how he responds in chapters 23 and 24. He says, I want to speak with God. He really doesn't address so much of the words of, El of Eliphaz at this point. He'll, he, he will uh, in the course of, of time. But he says, he returns to his idea, I've got to speak with God. I've got to have uh, this, this uh, argument before God, give a defense of my life so that God will vindicate me because everybody thinks I'm a sinful man, just a, not just a sinful person, but a notorious, outrageous sinner. Your iniquity is great, Job, because of the greatness of his suffering. Everybody, he is a byword. When people think of Job, they think, oh, ah, he's an evil guy because look what all has happened to him. They're interpreting, the observers are interpreting life based on a model 
that isn't true. It, it doesn't deal with Job's situation. It, 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 he's an exception to this, this model. It doesn't explain all things. We're trying to explain life based on a limited perspective. We didn't know, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad, so far didn't know what was going on in chapters 1 and 2, but they could see, oh, Job, you're suffering greatly, therefore your sin is great. And everybody else said, yeah, Job is a notorious sin. We thought that he was a great guy, the greatest of the sons of the East. We really know he's a, just a scoundrel, a rascal, all those nasty things. And so Job says, I've got, I, can't, I can't defend myself with other people. I've got to come before God, and God has to be the one to vindicate me. Oh, to speak with God, he says. Verse uh, 2 says of chapter 23, even today, which kind of reminds us, okay, is it another day? Is it weeks past that the friends have been? Probably not, probably very, very soon after. But he says, even today or even now, my musing is rebellion, he considers, and his hand is heavy despite my groaning. I'm saying things to God. It seems like I'm in rebellion or, or being insubordinate to God, but now I'm just speaking out of the intense pain, the groaning of my heart, the groaning of my life. His hand is as heavy. It's, it's weighing me down. But there's no reason. Like if you read Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, there was a reason that David was suffering when he had the, the chastening of his soul, that he had this fever and he had all, all these nasty physical... It's because of David's sin. And when David confessed it, then he was restored. So there is truth to it, but there's no sin that is warranting this treatment of Job at this time. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat or his throne or his, his fixed place. Where is God that I can find him so I can come before him? I would arrange my case for justice before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I know the words which he would answer and discern what he would say to me. I've got it all figured out. I've planned this whole conversation out. When he says this, I'll say this. Got the whole thing figured out. But then he says, would he contend with me? by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he'd pay attention to me. Even though God is so great, so mighty, so powerful, I know he'll listen to me. Why? Why? Because he'll, he mentioned later that the righteous person can stand before God. I, I'm a righteous person. Not in his own righteousness, but the righteousness to be received by faith, right? Even Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Genesis 15 verse 8, is it? Or 10, somewhere right about there. He says, there the upright, there it is, first the, the, the upright, the righteous person would argue with him, and I would have escaped forever from my judge. God is my judge, not the other people. They're kind of weird looks at me. They're mocking me, and they say, oh, there's Job. But it's my judge that I'm concerned with. God is, is my judge. God is my vindicator. And if God vindicates me, then it doesn't matter what people say. Let them say whatever they're going to do. But I would have escaped if I can have that, that, that uh, debate or that argument before God, if I can have my justice from him. But then he kind of resorts in verses 8 and following, but God, I where is God? I can't draw near to him. He hides from me. I go forward, verse 8, but he's not there. I go backward. I cannot discern him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I can't see him. Any which way I go, I try to find him, which is the opposite kind of thought of Psalm 139, that God is everywhere with me. I can't even go to the depths of Sheol. God is with me. And Job says, it's not my experience. Where is God? Where is God in my trials? And so he gives it four, four directions, forward, backward, right, and left, or left and right, may have reference to uh, directions of the compass. And by the way, if we did it properly, that map would be rotated on its side, so the north would point that way and east would be up, because that's how normally people would in the ancient world, especially in, in Canaan, that area, would think of east is you know, everything is east-oriented. Our maps are typically north-oriented. In which case, in this way, 
I go east, but he's not there. I go west, but he's not there. I go north, and it even has a statement, he acts on the left, he acts on the north, kind of has reference, he'll mention it again later, about the, the, uh, the, the mountain of the north and where God's throne is, and he says, I'm going to where God is supposedly enthroned, and, and he's not there, I can't behold him there. And then I go to the south, and I can't see him down there. So he said, any which way I go, I, d- I can't find him. He is beyond me. He says, he goes on in verse uh, 10, he knows I'm innocent. He knows I'm innocent. I can't find him. I can't have my vindication from him, but he knows the way I take, verse 10. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows the way I take it. It's not like he is ignorant. God is not ignorant of Job's situation. God is just not spoken, and God hasn't spoken since chapter 2 of Job, but he will. We're going to spend a good time in chapters 38 and 39, 40, 41, God speaking. Wonderful, wonderful things. But Job takes refuge or takes comfort in the thought, God does know my situation. God has, uh, here's, here's a, a way to understand this first phrase. He knows the way I take, uh, uh, which is a fine translation. It's very good. The, another way to understand it is he knows the way with me or he knows the way with me. In other words, Job is saying, God knows what he's doing. I don't understand it. I can't plumb the depths of his wisdom. I don't know what he's or why he's doing this, but I know he does. I know he knows what he's doing. He knows his way with me. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Here's the idea. This is a test. This is not a punishment. This is not a chastisement. This is not something that Job has to root something out of his life. This is a test, kind of like back in Genesis 22 when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain, which I'll show you. What? That son? Isaac? You tell me to... Yes. And then the end end product of that result is now God says to Abraham, now I know that you trust me. You fear me. You'll do what I see even when it doesn't make sense to you. God knows his way. When he has tested me, Job says, I shall come forth as gold. Return to the idea of uh, purification. Again, it's not that there was sin in his life, but there's always something that can be rooted out, tested, refined in our lives. We need to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And so Job has that confidence. I shall come forth as gold. And by the way, that is God's confidence too. Why was Job chosen and not Eliphaz for this whole trial? Because Eliphaz, he's got a bunch of wrong-headed ideas, and he's not the righteous guy, and he's not blameless, and he's not thinking rightly. But Job is the one. He is, he is character-wise, Top of the top of the charts, he is in terms of notoriety in a good sense. The fame that he had, absolutely greatest of the sons of the east. This is the one that we're going to have this test, this experiment with, because God is proving various things to us, which we have seen somewhat, and we'll see as we go forward. God displaying Himself as He is sovereign, He is omnipotent, He is omniscient, He knows all things, He can do all things that please Him, and He is near to all of us. And so Job is a, a means to accomplish these these uh, wonderful tests. He says, I have held fast. My foot is held fast to his path. I have, not, I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. So remember Eliphaz said, oh, if you'll just value what God says. And Job says, yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do. And not just in a a minor way or in a, in a kind of a, a superficial way. I meditate. It has come. It has not departed. It is treasured within, as it says here, uh, more than my portion of food. Or um, it's like in Psalm 119, 
Uh, in my heart, I've hidden your word so that I may not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. God, your word is not just something I, I put on little post-it notes. Let's they didn't have post notes back then. They had clay tiles and whatever. They write it down. And, and so he says, I, I meditate. I give it to other people, but I meditate upon it. I have not departed. I have, everything is ordered by God's word. But then he goes on. He says, I know that he is, he, is, um, he is near to me. He knows I'm innocent. But even so, he terrifies me. Verse 13. He is unique. And who can turn him? He is one of a kind. He is the only God. He is the only one with whom we have to do. He is the one that is so powerful, so above us. He is the one and only incomparable God. He kind of reminds you of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, is our God. Yahweh is one. And he says this same kind of idea. God is unique. What his soul desires, that he does. Thankfully, God is good because he can do anything within his character. What delights in him, what is accomplishing his will. Whatever his soul desires, that's what he does. That's what he does. And that's what's going to happen. God is so powerful. And he terrifies me. He performs what is a portion for me. And many such decrees are with him. Everything that he wants to be done in my life, he's going to accomplish. Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence. I carefully consider and I am in dread of him. It's God who has made my heart faint, and the Almighty who has dismayed me. But I am not silent by the darkness, nor thick darkness which covers me. He has this great apprehension, which he's mentioned before. God, I have two requests. Let me come before you and present my case, and then don't terrify me. Don't frighten me out of my wits, because you're just so great, and who am I? He says, God terrifies me. I want to speak with him, but he is beyond me uh, here. He goes on and says, look. I am going through all these, these difficult things in my life, chapter 24, and I, I have a greater awareness, I suppose you could say, of the suffering of other people. But in the context of, why is there suffering of these people? They're, they're not the sinners. They're being oppressed. They're being victimized by the people. Why does God not execute judgment regularly? Because that's what the friends are saying. Suffering follows sin. God will punish you or the evildoer, so you better be a righteous person. You better repent of these things. And Job says, okay, well, if that's the case, then why don't we see that more often? How often does God bring that judgment upon evildoers? And he gives a whole, whole series of examples of, of sin. Verse, four, verse 1 of chapter 24 says, Why are times, and you can understand times of judgment or times of retribution, why are these times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not behold his days? Why are these, these, these times or these times of judgment? People who love him and adore him say, God, how long will you let these sinners prosper? And this has been a plea, well, time to the end of time. Remember in Revelation, oh, what chapter is it? Chapter 6, maybe, when those who are before the throne of God and they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you bring judgment upon those who have killed us? So even at the end of time, God is patient about bringing judgment upon him, upon the evildoers. But Job says, why does God not execute judgment regularly? Because if he did, then that would under underscore the rule of the friends that God does bring judgment upon evildoers. And he gives a whole bunch of examples. I don't read all of them here in verses 2 and following. He talks about thievery or theft, uh, property theft or, or uh, donkeys and oxen and, and so forth. There's uh, 
oppression of the poor, verses uh, 24 and following. They are afflicted. The afflicted land are made to hide themselves together. They're, they're, they're kind of skittish. They're, they're being taken advantage of all the time. They don't have enough food to eat here in this middle section, 5 and 6 and 7. Um, they're around food all day, but they can't eat any of it, right? They, they harvest their fodder in the field and glean the vineyard of the wicked. Uh, they are... Down in verse uh, 11, I guess it would be, within the walls they produce oil, they tread wine presses, but they thirst. They can't drink any of the stuff they're working with. They they can't take advantage of any of the sheaves that they're carrying. They can't eat from that grain. These are the wicked people. And this is what Eliphaz had accused Job of doing, right? Job, you're just so wicked. You take advantage of the people. He says, no, let me tell you about some people I've seen that have been taken advantage of. Not anybody in my household. I took care. Chapter 31, he'll, he'll catalog those blessings that he gave to other people. He says, look, if God executed judgment, that he would take care of these people who oppress and take advantage of uh, workers, of the poor, and everything like that. These people who act under cover of darkness, and he lists, by the way, murderers, adulterers, and thieves. Those three sins, murder, adultery, and thievery or burglary, which are cataloged together or, or appear together in other places as well. He says those are the people who operate at night. They're hiding. They're trying to hide from God. God can see it, right? Uh, God does. Well, if God sees it, why doesn't he judge them? He goes on, though. He says, look, he doesn't do it now, but I know that God will judge the wicked. Evil will be punished. And he gives the example, verse 20 or verse 18. They are insignificant on the surface of the water. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyards. You think, what in the world is he talking about? Like a little, I don't know if you ever played poo sticks on a creek. You drop a little thing, see how fast it goes. A little, you know this game? Okay. They are like that insignificant little thing. And even even smaller than the little poo stick you threw on the in the creek. Just a, a little little flotsam, little something that little little foam thing. That's what the wicked are like. What Job is saying, may they be like this way. May their portion be cursed on the earth. Whatever, the smallest little thing and the largest thing that they have. These vineyards, it says they don't turn toward the vineyards. Job is saying, look, I want God's judgment to come upon them so significantly that even their most treasured resource, their vineyard, which takes a long time to develop and cultivate and, and, and prepare for, for fruit. Read Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5 about that. That they don't, they don't return to that. They, they flee. They get out of there because... Their judgment comes upon them like drought and heat, seizing the snow waters or snow is melted so quickly, it's gone uh, uh, by heat and, uh, lack, and lack of moisture. And so does Sheol destroy or seize those who have sinned. So he's saying, look, death comes upon these people. And oh, just, wow, what a picture he portrays here. He says, I know the evil will be punished, verses 18 to 21. But in verse 22, kind of has the statement, but it's not going to be immediate. This judgment by God upon the evil, he drags off the mighty by his power. He rises, but no one believes in his life. He provides them. God provides them with security, and they're supported, and his eyes are on their ways. They're exalted a little while. In other words, maybe in this life, they'll be exalted. They'll have their heyday. They'll have their best life now, if you don't mind. But then they're gone, absent, and, and you don't know where they went. They're brought low, like, brought low, and like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, they're cut off. It's like... these caught off in this, not harvested, but even before the grain can be harvested and brought to to a value or benefit to the farmer, these these people will be destroyed and cut off. And he says, verse 25, he's so certain of these things. Look, if this isn't so, 
who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? You guys are saying the exact opposite, that God always judges the wicked. I say God will judge the wicked, but it doesn't happen immediately. And it doesn't happen like you can, you can say, well, they're sinning, or excuse me, they're suffering, so they're a sinner, or they're being blessed, so they're, they're pious. That's not how it works. And if you can give me an example to prove me wrong, then show it. Otherwise, shut your mouth. You have no, your value, you're not giving me any value. Not helping me at all, and not helping the wicked. Well, Bildad goes on in a very short chapter, uh, in uh, re- chapter 25, and he makes basically a repetition of, of his argument and Eliphaz's argument, and we'll look at it just briefly here, that he rehearses the same thing and celebrates just a bunch of nonsense that uh, is just wrongheaded in so, in so many ways. He's claiming no one can be right or pure before God. No one. It's impossibility. No one can do it. And so the chronic begs the question, and well, or raises the question, well, how, how then can, um, what's your big deal then? If nobody can be pure and righteous before God, then why are you saying that Job should repent? If there's no hope for him, then what's your solution? Well, we know you ought to do this and that. It's just a bunch of, a bunch of foolishness, his, the, their whole solution. And if you don't mind, I don't know if you can see this at all, and it kind of over, overfills the screen a little bit, but there is a chiastic or chiastic structure here in chapter 25. It's a very short and yet very well-balanced statement that Job or that Bildad uh, presents to Job. And it, it, this is the, the shortest chapter in the book, and it's almost like all the wisdom, and, and no, none of the friends speak except Eliphaz, which isn't, he's not classified as a friend or introduced as a friend earlier. He'll speak later. This is a last hurrah for the friends. And it's a, it's a downer. It's a bad news. It's not helpful. It, it's not true. But there's this, this chiastic structure or chiastic structure looking like an X. And it's basically everything that he said before really drives to the central point, the, what are labeled as D and D prime right there. How can mortal man be right with God? How can he be pure who is born of a woman or born of woman? emphasizing these terms not a, a strong man but a weak a weak uh, weak person just uh, just frail feeble humble somebody born of woman versus uh, god who who's not right the contrast a and a prime god is is in the heavens and look how look at that mortal man that maggot that son of man that worm i mean the contrast between god is most high and and this maggot and wormy thing down here that's us bildad says really a downer really a, a nasty way to think of us. We who are made in God's image, yes, we are sinners. Yes, we need to be reconciled to God. But to think of us as on par with, with uh, maggots and, and worms. No, God made us in him, his image. Maggots and worms aren't that way. I know there, there's a hymn that talks about that, that we are uh, um, worms, right? Before God, we are feeble and frail, which is true, but we're made in God's image. And the, the, so there is some dignity. That's why, by the way, it's not, it's not a fault for uh, a raccoon to go thieving and taking you know, cat food or, or killing chickens or whatever kind of things. That's what raccoons do. And they're not going to be punished. They're going to die. I mean, are raccoons going to be in heaven? Probably not. There's rascals and, and whatever. But it's wrong for humans to sin because we're made in God's image. We're made after him. We should reflect his honor, his holiness, his righteousness. And so to compare ourselves in, in one sense, okay, yes, we're, we're, we're not right. We're... we're creatures of dust and so forth, are honorable people made in God's image. So Bildad gets it wrong so many different ways. How can a man be right? Well, God can't, or excuse me, man cannot do it. 
Man can't clean up himself up to be right before God, but God can. And God is the one who provides a mediator. God is the one who, who can bring God and man together in a in an argument and that both would have to come to a resolution. Uh, in other words, who's the one that can uh, mediate between God and man? Who's the one that can bring these two disparate, uh, separate, antagonizing uh, parties together in in reconciliation as Eliphaz had said you know cease striving or make peace with him it's only God who can accomplish that only one who is God and man can bring those two together which is what Job had said earlier what he's going to return to that God himself is the one who has to be my mediator the God himself knows his way with me there's no hope for me apart from Christ apart from God which we come to know in time as Christ the Messiah There is that only hope that Job has that when God has finished his way with him, that he will come forth as gold, that he will be declared innocent, not because he's such a wonderful guy, but because he is coming on the basis of sacrifice, on the basis of a substitution, those animal sacrifices he presented back in chapter 1, and what he'll present later in chapter 42 on behalf of his friends, interceding for for others on behalf of a substitution. Somebody's got to die for sin right? That's the only way that we can have. And for Job to to suffer in this way really prefigures the idea, Jesus suffered. I mean, you want to talk about suffering? Job, yes. But coming to his own, his own received him not, John 1, that he was mocked, he was beaten, he was, you know, his face was just so marred that people couldn't recognize him. He had no stately form or majesty. All these things that happened to Jesus, why? Because he was a sinner? No, because he was the most obedient, such delightful and delighted uh, God-man who pleased God and God was willing to crush him. Not because he deserved it, but because Jesus died in the place of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, if they repented their foolishness and, and, and drew near to God in his, in his uh, righteousness, and everybody else who can confess Christ as Lord and Savior, recognizing got nothing i only come in the glory the the clothing of righteousness that god himself provides through the lord jesus christ repent of our sins putting them behind us and drawing near to god for life our father in heaven we're so grateful for this truth and the celebration that we have that we have a savior a mediator between god and man we can understand things better than so far and all those other characters because we have your word which teaches us and explains to us all these things we are grateful for the revelation of christ and the truth of his word the truth of of not just the red letters but everything is the word of christ and we want that to dwell within us richly dwell within us as job claimed that he ordered all of his steps according to your word we pray that that would be true of us as well not so that we could think that we're somehow adding value to you or, or making ourselves indispensable to your kingdom purposes but recognizing that's life that's our only life, to walk in your path, to walk in your commandments, which are not burdensome. They are delightful to us and the joy of our hearts. Please help us to forsake sin. Please help us to draw near to Christ in righteousness and obedience and faith. Please save, please sanctify for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.